Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. I'm joined once again by Adam Lawrence, financial engineer who has a, a bent towards economics. Great to have you on, Adam. Thanks for having me again, Will. So hugely experienced, over 500 property transactions in the UK over the, the last decade or so, the bulk of which have occurred in the last five years. Well-placed to talk economics and property. So we're going to be talking about productivity um, and not the productivity that the, the average property investor would think of, but the wider productivity of the economy and how that relates to property. So as an economist, how do you actually define productivity? Well, at the base level, Will, the really simple definition is, is output per unit of input. So... Uh, they tend to look when we get to the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, uh, who who keep the keep the ledgers, keep the books for the government. Um, certainly on the statistical front, not on the budgetary front necessarily. That's the Office of Budget Responsibility's job. But they they collect all the data in the wider economy, and they have some very very good statisticians working there, some very robust sample sizes. They will tend to look at output per hour. Um, for fairly self-evident reasons, really. And they'll also look at output per worker. So you can imagine, and this is quite often, you know, every single metric has its flaws. Um, you know, we, we see what are the big, broad metrics like unemployment and inflation and things used for, and they're criticised all the time. You know, do property investors listening to this care about inflation or do they care about inflation in building materials? Or do they care about inflation in labour? My argument would be they should care about all three for different reasons. Um, but that's, a, that's a, a slight segue, really. So uh, output per worker is important because it gives us a bit of an insight into how many hours does the average worker work? Because unemployment is one thing, but you might be underemployment is another that's not discussed that often. So you might be a part-time worker you might be working 20 hours a week and you want to work 40 uh, and that's underemployment and it's not really reflected anywhere but it does come back to the productivity figures in aggregate really um obviously some people are working part-time out of choice sometimes unfortunately the benefit system incentivizes people to work a certain number of hours per week there are a number of flaws with the with the incentive structure just like there are in any incentive structure realistically but those are the two sort of core numbers that the ONS will focus on. 
So I've uh, obviously come from uh, another country, New Zealand, um, and I've also lived and worked in a number of other countries on the way here. And one consistent theme is that uh, every place is convinced that, uh, or, or most people in every place are convinced their country is the most productive, hardest working, best, uh, without exception. And they can't all be right, is my observation. Um, well, you know, you know, it's really interesting because when you get into the metric, you could argue is inherently flawed. So we, we probably need to have quite a, a long discussion about this, really. So if you lined up the G7 economies on the basis of the, the way that I've outlined those metrics are measured, the UK sits roughly in the middle of the G7. And on paper, in fact, I'd like you to have a guess, Will. There are two countries in the G7 that are the equally most productive. I think you'll get one of them very easily. I think the other one's slightly challenging. So would you like to have a guess? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, um, I'll just guess one and I'll say Germany. So that, interestingly, no, right? So the US is top mm -hmm. alongside France. Now, that's going back to the, the, the nationalism side of your argument. That's interesting. Probably what's even more... Don't ever mention this to a French person, by the way. <laughs> well, probably what's even more interesting is who is bottom of that table. So the UK sits in the middle. I've told you that already. So of the G7, we've, we've knocked out three. And let's face it, we're, we're probably pretty sure it's not Germany, but I might be, I might be uh, hoodwinking you there. Um, but we've knocked out three. So who do you think is bottom of the G7 productivity table? You, you've got me stumped. No, no. It's Japan. Now, on the face of it, that might seem ridiculous because although I accept your nationalist premise that you, uh, that you expounded a couple of minutes ago, we don't think of the Japanese as an unproductive economy in any, any definition of it. But then what we have to do is we have to unpick the mathematics of the way it's calculated. Because mm. what does that really mean if you know anything about the Japanese work culture? Well, what it means is they work so many hours and it's, the, it's what the economists call the law of diminishing returns, ultimately. Because they, they, they average like four... Uh, holiday four holiday days per week, or they did maybe ten years ago. Anyway, yeah, that, that's that's absolutely it. And ultimately, they are the embodiment of just because the average worker works. I don't know what the number is, but let's say it's fifty-eight hours a week or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's proof that you're not as productive because this is. Remember how we're measuring this, right? Mm -hmm. We're looking at per time, per amount of time worked. Mm -hmm. So you, they're doing they might be producing more output. You might produce 100 units of output on a 40-hour week. And the Scandinavians might argue you'll produce 98 units of output on a 30-hour week, right? Or even 102 in some of the studies that I've seen. But the Japanese would rather produce 110 units and do it in 60 hours a week. So mathematically... And if, if you think about the, uh, the range of productivity or outputs... Um, for property investment, think about all of the property investors you know. Are, are the hardest working ones necessarily the most prolific? It, it's, and I think even if we substitute hardest working 
for longest working. Yes. Um, that would be interesting. Now, they might achieve more, but what's the marginal impact on their... On the extra 30 hours work. Yeah. What's the marginal benefit? This is a, and, and one of the best concepts, really, in economics is about marginal costs, um, because that's really what you're looking at, especially when, you know, from a... Let's say you, you open a bowling alley and you have to put in a lot of money up front. Once the money's in, then ultimately you're looking at marginal cost and marginal revenue. So it might be very cheap once people are in, once the, once the kit's all in, to actually operate the bowling alley. Mm -hmm. And they might, might run to quite a high margin. But ultimately, your business case needs to be around the net present value of the investment in the capex in the first place. So that, and that's not uncommon in, in business where there's moving parts and machines and, and stuff like that. Uh, it's a little bit more intangible, something you know lots about in terms of people and the service industry. Um, although this is why you often, when you're in a big law firm or accountancy practice or consultancy firm or whatever, ultimately billable hours becomes the, the one KPI because that's the metric that, that people can see. But what they won't see necessarily is just because you build 2,000 and I build 1,800, if we don't look at the quality of the feedback and the work and the business that's been brought in on the back of that, then it's not just billable hours, really. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty simple equation. You, you have a law firm partner who might be billing, we'll just say £500 an hour, uh, which is ridiculous in the uh, outside of London, but uh, it's half what, what a, a decent uh, law firm partner would bill in, in the city. So £500 an hour, they bill out 10 hours to say, 5,000 pounds. They go and get, spend those same 10 hours and go and get a half million billing piece of work for their, their team, uh, which is a better use of the 10 hours. Exactly, exactly. And, and the, same, uh, the same applies to the economy, I believe. So I think, I think we need to have another little segue here, really, because this is what, where it gets very interesting on the back of the pandemic, because the, the research, um, the, the, the wider body of research that existed on working from home before the pandemic suggested that it was the next big solution to productivity. So there's, there's a few questions we might need to ask around that. So, so uh, I'd find it really useful, Adam, if you could um, if you could look at this at three levels. So, the UK economy as a whole, the property sector as a whole, and then as an individual property organisation or investor. Okay. So, from from the from the top level, realistically, um, when we're talking about working from home and the the impact on productivity the discussion we've just had informs us a little bit there so if we keep the numbers loosely loosely right around about 50 percent, somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of jobs in the uk are estimated to be able to be done from home right so let's say we use 50 percent because it'll keep the numbers nice and easy and we have a very service driven economy as you know and we do more and more service provision every year so this applies to half the jobs. The average commute before the pandemic was one hour, 23 minutes each way every day. So let's round that up to hour and a half each way, three hours, right? 
three hours travel. What do most people do? Well, there's lots of people packed into trains and things like that. They can't really do that much in terms of work. If you're driving, like lots of other people do, again, you've got to keep your eyes on the road. There's a limit. Obviously, you can you can make and take phone calls, but it's not necessarily the time of day to be doing that. So um, it's not zero production output, but it's not much. It's not much while you're commuting. What a lot of surveys found was that the 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 trade off, if you like, of working from home and the the attractiveness of it that you maybe you didn't have to get dressed up in a suit or you didn't have to do this or you didn't have to do that. You know, commuting is what we would call a hygiene factor, generally speaking. Um, even for the people who are enthusiastic about traveling and, and all the rest of it, you do it five days a week, 10 times a week, you're soon going to get sick of it, just like anything. The best way to spoil a good hobby is to make it your profession. Um, that's uh, that's a, a well said a well said phrase. So you bear that in mind. And what what the survey data, what the poll data found out was, people were working about forty five minutes longer every day than they were when they had that commute to consider. So pretty good. They were they were keeping seventy five percent of the spare time for themselves, right? And they were investing 25% of that spare time back into their job. So they were getting paid the same money at the time um, and doing and, and giving 25% of their newfound leisure time up in order to do more work. Now, go back to the quest, the, the, the points around the calculation side of that. Did they produce any more? Well, the pandemic's not really a very fair test because when it came, companies weren't ready. Sudden, it was it was nearly overnight for people. It, obviously, there was a couple of months leading that the country was mostly busy ignoring what was going on around the world and 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 whipping up into a frenzy. People didn't have comfortable office chairs and decent printers and good IT kit and all the rest of it. In fact, completely the reverse. They got the old thirty quid HP printer that prints stuff out at you know six pages a minute versus the office one that that chunks things out at, at mega light speed. You know. So they, they gave up their 45 minutes to probably do a little bit less work. And that's what the, the statistics show. And it took them more time. So you can imagine output per worker, output per hour worked goes off a cliff to an extent. So does that mean, and the, the question, you know, when we're talking about productivity, it is often talked about as the silver bullet of the metrics to say, look, pre-2008, UK productivity was ticking along about 2% a year, right? Year on year growth. Now, there is very few, in fact, not really any other ways in which you can achieve long-term GDP growth without increasing productivity. Now, since the financial crash, the problem is that productivity has gone up at about 0.7% per year. So it's about a 66% reduction in how productive the UK economy was. And it's been called the productivity puzzle. There was tons of literature on this, you know, all through the 2010s, um, right up to just before the pandemic. And then like, like the pandemic has done to a lot of metrics and statistics, well, it's blown them out of the water. So they're not really particularly useful. You know, one quarter, quarter two, 2020, productivity was down over 25%. 
and this is something that normally moves at 0.3% per quarter or whatever, you know. And there's a great parallel, uh, I think, that property investors will relate to at this time is different times require different thinking. Absolutely. And I think before we go, before we step down one level, there's probably one more thing that we need to, to highlight here, and that is furlough. You know, the furlough scheme had an incredible impact on on the figures. But actually, interestingly, when the furlough scheme was phased out finally between quarter three and quarter four last year, it didn't affect productivity at all, um, which is which is particularly interesting because but in the same way, it didn't affect unemployment at all, even though there have been lots of predictions uh, saying do doom mongering predictions that it would mm. be the be all and end all of the. Uh, of what had gone on it was in fact a very very successful policy in the way it was implemented um so we, we need to we need to sort of bear that in mind and then if we come down to the the property investor level if you like why is productivity important well it's important because of the, the growth side of things people are looking for growth if you don't have growth you don't have wage growth in the long run or you don't have healthy wage growth anyway you don't have um you know, if you're renting property to people, you would like them to be progressing. Um, we should probably just have one more little segue, Will, before we go into that in any more detail. Would you like to have a guess at what the most, the, the invention of the last 120 years, let's say since 1900, that's made the biggest impact on productivity? Well, Bill Gates's version was uh, uh, limited liability companies. Well, that's that. To be fair, that's about sixteen twenty. The first, the first, the Dutch, the Dutch, um, and the shipping corporation. So we can't count the we can't count right, the LL. Right. Uh, okay, so um, I think that's probably a bigger impact on wealth than it is on productivity as well. But but yeah, I, I, I can see. I'd, I'd can say see I'd say um, the expansion of the rail network. So interestingly enough, it's the washing machine. Right. And you could understand why that might. Yeah, a hundred percent. I've I've seen the old photos um, uh, of the washing lines uh, that that were all done by hand uh, across, you know, across you know early early nineteen hundred Britain, like the three, three to four hours a day turned into ten minutes prep and pulling it out and hanging it up to dry effectively mm -hmm. maybe you know so an incredible from a percentage perspective a phenomenal time saving you didn't fall into the usual trap which people usually say the internet but then if you mm -hmm. think about how much time you spend scrolling on facebook and watching dog and cat videos you can see why the internet might not be as productive as some people might think so um but but yeah it, it, and has anyone uh listening ever wasted some time on the internet uh, that's a good question <laughs> exactly exactly so yep. the a lot of the more bearish stuff says, well, you know what? The low-hanging fruit of productivity is gone. Now, <clears throat> there has been a bit of a trend over time, um, but obviously tech is the next big hope in general. So the self-driving car would be phenomenal on many levels. I've seen academic work that estimates you could get between six and ten times as many vehicles on the road if every vehicle was autonomous. Obviously, you could you could work quite happily. A car would look different. You know, you'd likely have, you know, a car for the uh, for the worker, which had a desk in where you sat in the back. The seats wouldn't look the same. 
you know, you could, it's a mobile office, it's not a car anymore, you know. So as if and when that happens, there's obviously quite a significant, and of course, again, there's multiple spins you can put on that because some people would say, well, puts 4 million taxi drivers and HGV drivers and all the rest of it out of work, like overnight. Um, we won't, will it? Because these things will need maintaining, they will need supervising, they will need, you know, a, a period of years where there's an autopilot transition. There's, and, and historically, you know, we haven't had that and started probably talking about that in the 50s where robots would take everybody's jobs. And yet we sit today with 3.9% unemployment in the UK, 3.6% unemployment in the US. I, I, th I think that sort of um, accusation that computers are going to take over workers' jobs, there's been an interesting parallel with, with each reduction in uh, workforce numbers in an industry with an almost precisely increase in uh, IT workers uh, providing you know, service around that. So if you, if you think about the, the size of the IT sector, the size of... Um, of the organisations within that versus 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. And go into the, the average wage of an IT worker and the average standard of living of an IT worker. It's improved them mm -hmm. compared to, it, it's, not, it's not made them worse, it's improved them. So, so when we go, if we, if we try and bring this down to the, the, the property investor level from the macro level, then... Can, can I, I just want to ask one, one uh, as... It's quite a hard question, but if you can give your best get best guess off the cuff, so okay. what? Um, what am my belief? Uh, as a as an economy, capital inflows. So other other countries sending money in, basically. Um, how does productivity affect that? Well, we what are we talking about specifically? As in, are we talking about in flowing into investment opportunities are we talking about government debt and people buying bonds are we talking because you know financial transactions are not going to form part of the productivity calculation so buying buying and selling of guilt but, but in terms of what what is the impact on the attractiveness the cost of debt and the um well, the... if you think if you're going to make an international investment then you're going to consider a few things aren't you why do why you know this, this is not a trick question why have so many people put money in london property over the past 15 years you know partially god you you answer that question so i i think uh, basically people would uh, see it as a uh, a safe place that, yeah. that it's historically uh, it's always grown so the, the rule of law right as well is a big factor. Yeah. Oh, so, sorry, when I said safe, that, that, that's what I yeah. meant. Uh, safe for yeah. the money. Unless you're a Russian oligarch, potentially. So, mm -hmm. so put, put all that under the rule of law. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned growth there as well. Historically, um, it's, it's interesting, the UK dynamic in how much bigger London is, disproportionately much bigger than Birmingham and Manchester, make it a, a very clear, we're not going to have a different capital city in 20 years' time. You know, we can be fairly sure about that and that, that changes in other sorry in other to ways. disappoint the newcastle listeners on the show <laughs> we might move the house of lords but we're not we're not changing the capital city right um mm -hmm. so there's there's, and there's you can have them as my view <laughs> but they've 
but they've got to uh, indeed they've got to um uh consider the currency stability um which, some of which is related to the rule of law of course um and the attractiveness of holding an asset denominated in in pounds um you know if you look versus gold or versus the us dollar or versus um any other particular global currency you might want to consider some of those haven't done that well in london property the gbp we've done well some of them haven't done that well because of a longer term depreciation of sterling um depends what year they got in um apart from anything else uh, so they, you would you would be considering that as well you know so but from from a from a from a if you look at what's happening let's say let's look at the last 12 to 18 months right if it's now costing 20% more to deliver one house, what does that do to productivity? You know, units mm. of output the same, cost of input up 20%, productivity drastically reduced on that basis. Um, so that needs to be, how do you combat that? Well, you need newer, you need modern methods of construction. You need faster delivery. You need to be able to, get gain and, and what we're seeing is we're not seeing gains and what does that mean well from a building perspective it, it's recessionary or it's inefficient at the very best because what we won't see is growth in the building sector because productivity is increasing now then you've got to go one step further and say does that fate if you buy secondary market stock as a lot of investors do um if you're delivering primary first-to-market stock, if you're a developer who does new build units, is it easier or harder to be trading? And is your, are your margins going to be looking better or worse? And what's the outlook for the next five years if that trend carries on? The answer is pretty bleak, realistically. And you need to find new ways and, and do what, you know, someone like myself and someone like Rod have done over the years, which is you, you change and you... You flow through what you're doing. You don't sit and do the same thing every day because opportunities, windows open and windows close when it comes mm -hmm. to opportunity, you know. So then in the secondary market, does it help or hinder that that's going on in the primary market? Well, it helps because if suddenly, instead of selling a new build house in Stoke at 150 grand, developers got to sell it at 200 grand to make the same margin, then... Your house that was 120, and that was a, a, an acceptable new build premium in the area, you know, 20, 25% difference, now suddenly is trading at 150. And you haven't had to suffer the building productivity side. You would do through your maintenance costs as an investor, as a, as an investor but you wouldn't, you wouldn't suffer that on a, the same level that a, a developer would in terms of how much of your time and effort goes into delivery. You know, and there's a there's an interesting figure that um, the Ricks put out several years ago, where they looked at twenty years of um, of uh, development statistics, and and the average return uh, or profit margin on a development over the twenty years. So, so think about all the things that go up and down over that time was just over 17%. Now, if you take the average development as being 18 months. Uh, Will, are you suggesting that's a relatively flat line over those 20 years? 
So no, but but that that's the the average over that time. So all all developments that Rick's had an ability to to measure, the number was seventeen. Now, I I believe that eighteen months was the average period in that particular study, and obviously, if you're longer than that, the you know, if it's two years, your seventeen percent turns into eight and a half, which is it doesn't you know it doesn't sound great if you're if you think about the risks associated with going into a development. Doesn't sound great when people offer thirty percent return to the people who are going to put cash into developments, does it? So or thirty percent commissions on top of the thirty percent. Indeed, topically, in, indeed, yeah, and that that doesn't really surprised me that much to be honest um and the, one of the things about irr for example as a metric mm-hmm. is that and productivity is similar time is a big factor here right and mm-hmm. that's what people miss um at the simplest level so if we go if we take that one step further down to the individual level um to the investors and developers who might be might be listening to this will um you've got to consider your personal productivity and there's been an explosion of literature on this stuff in the last 20 years. You know, Harvard, Harvard Business Review could keep you busy for a good few weeks reading stuff about productivity hacks would probably be the phrase to Google, wouldn't it? Um, and there's a few things that are not rocket science, that are not particularly news to people. If you're tracking what you're spending your time on, you'll be much more productive. If you have, I was in a, I was in a meeting about trying to buy a big portfolio yesterday and the guy selling it is in his mid seventies. And he said, I don't have any hobbies. You know, I don't like golf. I don't like walking. I'm not interested in boats. (laughs) And, uh, you know, his problem when he, when he does sell this, if if he does sell it, when he sells it, um, will be what to do with his retirement. Again, it comes down to time tracking and thinking what you want to do with you you have to learn to value and we we do this in boardroom club actually we've got a couple of people who they're part of their kpis and their their overall strategic plan is to be able to take more leisure time right so we say right okay so that's going to go in as your that's your top area of focus for this year is that you get in 12 track days or you get in 42 kayaking sessions or whatever floats your boat and do treat and do you know what you'll probably find is that your business what happens to your individual productivity when that happens it goes through the roof and why does it well fewer hours means that the mathematics is pretty much guaranteed to work but also satisfaction rest lower stress levels tons and tons and tons of reasons and what you and this is why you see there is there is quite a lot of, I think the problem that there will be, um, Atom Bank was one of the recent organisations to do it, but they've gone to a four-day working week and they'll go eight till six, Monday to Thursday, generally speaking. Now, the problem with a lot of the research is that it's not cross-sectional enough. So it doesn't go over enough years for me because the problem is, I would imagine, at the start of the process, there's a lot of incentive to have that extra day off to do this, to do that. Where will that productivity be in five and 10 years time? I've not seen enough 
robust academic literature to convince me that it won't suffer. Humans are strange, and when you change incentive structures, they're stranger. So let's see what happens and how well they get on from doing their four-day weeks. It's, it's very possible. I think there's a there's maybe I think you're much better off on an individual level if you want to work on your productivity to do something that you love, because you can't do 60 hours a week productive in something that you don't love. You can do 70 hours productive in something you do love. You can do 15 or 20 hours productive work in something that you love and do the equivalent of a hundred hours of someone who's doing something that they hate. That's the other, you know, People like Stephen Kotler talk about flow quite a lot and how you can be five times as productive if you're in flow and ways and means of not tricking yourself, but again, I suppose productivity hacks and things like that. So I think the, the, the first step for anybody listening to this who wants to do any work on that sort of stuff is the honest conversation or journaling of yourself. And I've got a friend, for example, got a big development company um third generation developer and he says do you know what you know i detest these different parts of what i do every day and he kind of does it because he's been he's, he's in a, a, a position of responsibility as he sees it within the family office effectively um but he'd be much better off i said to be much better off just paying someone to, to do some of this stuff um and lowering his margins because you don't want to go through. I've had a, a few friends over the years who have not, in, it's normally family business commitments, have not enjoyed much of what they do. And they just want to, and, and they, they'll go through slumps of years where they're really, really hacked off with what they're doing. Um, and they all want to give up by the time they're 50, but then they don't really know what they want to do with their time when they've done it because they've spent all of that, all of that focus. Um, Whereas if you if you genuinely do what you love or you can find the bits that you love and there'll always be, you know, property is a generalist, requires a generalist skill set. There'll be bits you're good at. There'll be bits you're not good at. I'm yet to meet the person who's good at them all. The people who are very successful are either good at being good at very few parts and outsource the rest. Um, or they get three or four of those parts to a somewhere between a good and an expert level and the blend of those skills protects them um, and makes them very very effective it brings it catapults them into the top one percent half a percent whatever of developers and investors so that's the sort of individual level coaching session i suppose will if you like well, 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 that's fantastic. And if anyone's interested in getting involved um, within their property business, uh, Adam is uh, one of the founders of the Boardroom Club, and you can connect with him on LinkedIn and access some more of these insights directly. Um, if you uh, look up Adam G. Lawrence on LinkedIn, uh, you'll be able to make contact, find out a little bit more about how the Boardroom Club works. And uh, I'd encourage you to do so if you've got a serious operating property-related business. Uh, himself and, and Rod Turner have been running it successfully for a number of years. Uh, if you have a look in the back episodes, there's a, a very good interview with Rod and Adam Vickers, who 
uh, I was going to say is one of the graduates, but he's still, uh, he so signed up for another round, I believe. Postgraduate, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. MBA, if you will. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, John Cox will appreciate that last line. <laughs> I know he will. I know he will. All right. So I'm, uh, I'm Will Mallard, uh, Adam Lawrence. Many thanks. Uh, this is My Property World podcast, and we'll, we look forward to um, next week. Always a pleasure, Will. Thank you. Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile.